We are up to 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to get through most of the chapter here tonight. I left a little bit of it for next week. But here we have the temple has been built. The insides have been furnished. And now we're going for the dedication ceremony. In verse 1 of chapter 8, Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Now if you wonder what this is significant of, mentions the seventh month. This is the month that um, they have some of the, the holidays here. I wrote them in your, your outline. This is uh, basically our month of October. This is the month where the ark rested on the Mount Ararat. It's also the month of the Feast of Tabernacles. That begins on the first of the month, Leviticus 23 and 24. The Day of Atonement is the tenth of, the, of that month. And the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the fifteenth. That goes for seven days. So you have the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement all inside of this month. The 1st, the 10th, the 15th, and again the 15th goes for seven days. This is in Leviticus chapter 23. There are other places in the Bible that you can find this as well. And let's see, go, turn on over to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls. 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God, and the priests attended this to their services, the Levites also with instruments of the music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their, their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered offerings, the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. So that huge bronze thing that we talked about last time wasn't big enough for what they were doing. So he did the whole front of the courtyard. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the month, the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad and of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. So the 15th started the Feast of the Tabernacles. You go for seven days, that's the 22nd. 23rd, he sends them home. What he did was he had two seven-day celebrations. And so he had them all there for 14 days instead of just the normal seven. I was reading all that mostly for, for you to see that part of it. Then Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. And Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. So God put some things in his heart and says he accomplished all of them. Let's go back over to our text over here in Kings. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep, 
and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. We saw that in the video last time. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark in its poles, and the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. So they're bringing up the ark from where it was. They put it on the poles like they were supposed to do. They didn't move it like David did with the cart and all that sort of stuff. They, they got the poles, they carried it on in and did exactly how they were supposed to do. They bring the poles and the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies and they leave the poles there. Up until this time, the poles had been removed, but no one's going to take it out here now. This is its home. This is where they're going to put it. So they left the poles in there with it. Just, just set it all up. But on their way, they're sacrificing all this stuff. They're sacrificing bulls and sheep and just can't even count them. Can't even count them. Now, where in the Bible does it tell them to do this? Absolutely nowhere. What are sacrifices for? For sin. Sacrifices are for sin. There are peace offerings. There are um, uh, first, the redeemed, redemption offerings. When you have a firstborn, if you wanted to redeem that, there were some sacrifices. There's every single sacrifice says this is what it's for. What are they sacrificing for? They're just sacrificing. They're just sacrificing. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's never condemned in the Word of God. God never says they shouldn't have done it. This is not the first time that David did the same thing when he was moving it. He had all kinds of sacrifices and stuff going on. Solomon's following after that example. And here's how we fall into some things that God never asked for because it, somebody else did it and it seemed to go pretty good. And that's really about the only reason that we have here. David just did it. Now, the first thing he did, he put the, the uh, ark on a cart. That didn't work out so good, so nobody m- mimicked that. <laughs> but when he brought it up the second time, and they used the right way, which was the poles, then they're out sacrificing again, and this time it worked out pretty good. So let's go ahead and, and copy the sacrifices. But we're not told in the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, any place in there, that when you are moving the ark of the covenant, offer sacrifices. Now, how many times has the ark of the covenant been moved? A whole lot of times because they moved it all over in the wilderness. And when Moses is moving the Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness, how many times did they offer sacrifices every step? They didn't do it. They never did it. Solomon is not doing what God wants. But God still didn't condemn him for it or reprimand him for it. He just let him go on. Here's the thing. We, we, we sometimes think that God gets satisfaction out of something that is done to cover up sin. The sacrifice is only there to, to make a, uh, an offering for sin. The blood of the bulls and the goats was to cover the sin. It was never to please God. But we start doing acts of worship that we think are acts of worship just because it's been done in the service of God. And we've got to be careful about this because sometimes we end up doing some things. Now, this is not necessarily an act of worship, and I know no one here does this, but we can throw this. this, You've probably heard this. How many people think they're carrying a cross for Christ because they're bearing some sickness or disease? Well, this is what God has put this on me. I need my cross to bear, something I'm supposed to be doing. They see that as doing this in worship to God, but God never asked them to do it. But they heard someone else who, who did it, and it sounded good to them. So they went ahead and did it. This is how we can fall into this stuff. Solomon does not need to do this. There's a whole lot of animals had to die here. <laughs> if Brother Creflo Dollar, no, no chickens had to die in the making of this auditorium. I love that line. That is just, 
that's got to be on God's top ten <laughs> sayings in, from a church. That's that is just outstanding. No chickens had to die at the building of this. <laughs> that's just a wonderful, fun, wonderful idea. But no bulls had to die to get the ark of the covenant to move. No sheep had to die to get the Ark of the Covenant to move. They could have just picked it up and done it exactly what the Word of God said to do, carried it on their shoulders and brought it right in. But they didn't do it. Now, it looked extravagant. It looked great. But is God impressed? No. Now, God doesn't reprimand them. But if we're not careful, we'll take sacrifices that are meant for something and they become nothing. Because they're not done for what they're, they're intended. So make sure that we follow along with the Word of God. Sometimes we fall into doing some things, but why are we doing it? What, is there a place in the Word of God where it called for it? Is there a place in the Word of God where it says, Thou shalt do this? Or did we just start doing it because somebody else did it and it worked for them? Or because we thought it was a good idea? And we do have to be careful with some of those things. They fell into this here. God didn't reprimand them. But just because God doesn't correct it doesn't mean that it'll keep going on. But they um, they did this anyway. One thing you can say though, it's a whole lot better to be on this side than on the side of uh, putting the ark on the on the cart. That's just uh, that wasn't good. People died. <laughs> on this one, bulls and goats died and stuff. The other one, people died. But anyway, they did. The, they carried this the right way and they took it on into the into the holy of holies. Now, how many people are allowed to be in the holy of holies? Only one. High priest. That's it. How many people are in the Holy of Holies right now? There's at least four there, right? That's because the presence of God has not come in yet. Because there were obviously more people in there when they were building it. And they were laying the gold. And they're doing all that. So it was not the Holy of Holies until the presence of God came in. It's the same thing with us, folks. We are not the Holy of Holies for God until the presence of God comes into us. So anyway, there are sacrifices along the way. They didn't need to be doing all this. And this is the uh, verse that Ethel was sharing with us before. Same concept here. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. I did some looking up on this thing and uh, no one knows what happened to them. They have, they have no idea. They said, there are a couple of suggestions that have been put, post, uh, put out there. Uh, one, the Philistines, when they captured it, opened it up and did some stuff with the contents. That could be. Now, bad things happened to the Philistines, so they could have opened it up. When it came back to Israel, to the first town, they opened it up. Maybe they did something with it. But as far as we know from the Scripture, the Ark of the Covenant had remained closed. And I think if anybody had opened it up and stole stuff out, I think people would have known. I just have an idea that uh, they just wouldn't have died quietly. <laughs> it, it, it would have been well known <laughs> that this this happened. So probably something with the Philistines or something with the other folks, they did something, uh, but we don't know. There is no record of it. There is nothing in Jewish uh, history that I could find anyway. Don't know what happened to it. But originally they were all three things in there, and now we just have the, the stone tablets. I don't know if you were... Philistines, of all the things in there, would the rod and the manna appeal to you the most? Maybe the manna, I guess, you know, it's food. Maybe they took it out and decided to try and sample it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. Somebody had to open it in order to find that out, huh? 
Mm. So nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now this is not written at this time. This is written much later. And maybe much later when things happened and the people came in and raided the temple, maybe they found out then. And So that could be where that came from. I don't, I don't know. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So they all went into the holy place to place the ark in there. When they came out of the holy of holies is when the glory of God came down and filled the place. So that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So, you know, people say, oh, I want to have a service like that. If you have a service like that, you can't stay in the building. <laughs> so how good is that? You know, the, the presence of God was so strong, it just it just chased them all out. Now, I've been in services when uh, when we were down there at Rainbow and we had uh, we, we had we had seminars when we were down there at Rainbow. They uh, when, uh, you know, we were up here. They had winter Bible seminar and it was uh, more subdued than the ones we had when we were out there. We had winter fall and spring seminar when we were there. Brother Hagen did all three. And we had a week of, of all three. And they went Sunday to Sunday, not Sunday to Friday. And they went on until they were done, not until now they went on. Uh, when we were started to church here, we started taking people down. Uh, 10, 10.30 was about as late as they went. They went on as late as 11, 11.30. They were, they were going on pretty late. Um, they, they had some services there. We've had some services where the glory cloud just came on in. And you could see a mist in the room. We had placed just some of the things that had gone on there. There's some manifestations that happened in, the, in that building. And that wasn't in the new building. That was in the old RCA building. That it was only held about 2,000 people. And you had to get there early just to get a seat in the main building. Otherwise, if you got there only half hour, 45 minutes early, you were out in the overflow. You had to get to church. You had to get to church at least an hour or two ahead to get a decent seat. If you wanted to get an overflow, you could come maybe about half hour before. If you if you waited too long, if you waited till service started, you may not get a seat anywhere. You may be out in the parking lot somewhere. <laughs> but it was they were intense they were they were quite the thing. I took one person over there. They were um unsaved. They're saved now. Glory to God, but they were unsaved then. And uh, uh took them on out there and uh, we got out of the car, and they said, oh, this place is different. <laughs> that was the very word. This place, no, I didn't feel anything different, but I'm used to it, I guess. They got out, oh, this place is different. Wow, just an awe. People can become in awe of the presence of God if you're not in it all that much. You get in it, you can get kind of used to it. But not necessarily to the point where you, you don't have to just take it for granted. You can just get to a place where you are used to it and, and, and still enjoy it and still like it. Don't, I don't, don't mean that in a negative way at all. But uh, Brother, um, Brother uh, Bob Yenyan, when he was uh, my pastor down over there, and he said, you know, he, he used to encourage people to go out and to visit other churches because he said, you go out and visit other churches and you find out what you got. <laughs> Because sometimes if you're in there every week, you don't know what you, what you had. Because, you know, well, the worship is always this way. Surely it's this way all the places. Uh, you know, the teaching is always this way. Surely it's that way. And they would go out and they would go to other places. And they find it's not that way all the places. And so they come back and say, oh, this is home. Yeah, this is good. And uh, I'll tell you what, that was, that was true. When I was going down there, Daniel Amstutz was the worship leader. Oh, we had good worship. Oh, I tell you, he was, 
He was something else. He's not in worship at all anymore. Oh, I tell you what, it breaks my heart. Wonderful worship he used to have. He's uh, according to an angel. She, she knows him. And she told us last he's uh, doing some um, uh, interior decorating now. Yeah, that's just... I, my jaw hit the table when she told me that. I just, no. <laughs> why, why would that be? I don't know why that is, but um, anyway, that's... Uh, but they, they got somebody else in. Somebody else came in behind that, and, and they were good, too. And I'd never heard of him before, but I think one of the times we took Jane Robin down to Raymond. Oh, this is so-and-so. He's written all these songs. I didn't know who he was at all. But he um, was good. He enjoyed You know, I was used to Daniel. And, you know, you get used to a, to a certain thing. And uh, that's good. But I should tell you what, I sure enjoy the, the worship. I don't need to go anyplace else to know, man, we have good worship here. Oh, man, we have good worship here. I, I like what we do here. I look forward to it every every Sunday. Um, I, I think about sometimes, you know, if we go on vacation, it goes over Sunday. Oh, man. <laughs> Where are we going to go have worship? <laughs> and there are other churches out there that there are places you can go visit. And you know, I guess that's okay, but you just usually are disappointed. It's just not the same thing. We uh, we can enjoy that. But anyway, the presence of God came in here, and they hadn't had a building for God to inhabit. This is the first time they had a building that God would inhabit, and God inhabited it and chased them all out. <laughs> he said, y'all get out of here. I'm going to make this place the way I want it to be. And maybe he even rearranged something. We don't know what he did, but he got on in there. He he He, he did some stuff with it. Got them all out of there, and whatever he did, he just uh, <laughs> took care of it. I don't. Know, I think he probably rearranged some things, or or shined some stuff up. Who knows what he did? He he made it. Uh, it's going to be his house now. He said, "This is my house now. You made it the way you want it. Now I'm going to make it the way I want." And I don't know. Maybe he made some um, some nice diamonds or some nice uh, put them in different. I don't know. Whatever it is, he did. He came on in, and they all had to get out. Now, just because the glory showed up, see, this is what happens sometimes with people. You have a good church service, the glory of God shows up, and you think this is so good. And so we try and do the same songs. You try and do everything the same way, and you find out that it, it didn't work. It, it didn't work that way. God doesn't inhabit places because you get all the stuff right. And this is an example. They did a whole lot of stuff they didn't need to be doing. Doing all those sacrifices and doing all that stuff. Didn't need to be doing that. Just pick up the ark, carry it in, drop it in there where it's supposed to be. And, and God would have still shown up. But anyway, verse uh, 12. Then Solomon spoke. Now Solomon is filled with all wisdom, but not necessarily his knowledge of the scripture. That doesn't seem to be handed to anybody. I don't, it's, it seems to be you have to, um, you got to spend some time on this. Listen to what he says. Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. That makes sense to you? I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. I don't know. Of all the things I think I would say here at this point, I, I just can't see that this would be it. The Lord said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Hmm. Well, first off, God's not going to dwell in this place forever. We know that eventually he's going to move out and inhabit the people. But he does give them a promise that uh, certainly seems like this. If you turn over to Psalms chapter 18 and verse 11, this is about all I can think of that Solomon must be, be going after. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Okay, well, that's one verse. 
Psalms 97, verse 1, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. Now, on this second one, I gave you some of the other verses around here to let you see that this is talking about the judgment side of God. And when you have the judgment side of God going on, then, yeah, darkness generally does come in. Uh, but most of the time, we have God associated with light, not darkness. So I'm not sure why he pulls this one out. I'm kind of scratching my head on that one and trying to figure that out. But um, anyway, he asked for wisdom to judge his people, not necessarily to discern the, the, the word of God. So maybe we'll go with something along that. Now, in the part here of dwell forever in Psalms 132, verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Now, all we really know about Zion, which is Jerusalem, is it goes way back to where we have Melchizedek, the, uh, the, the priest. Ethel was talking about him before. He's an incredibly interesting character. Yes, amen. <laughs> he has a lot of, a lot of things. I've, a, a long time ago, I developed a, a mini-series on Melchizedek. I don't know if we did or did it here, if I did it someplace else. But uh, it wasn't here. Oh, yeah. uh, he is a really interesting character, Melchizedek. And um, it must have been some. <laughs> well, I was. I did. I did stuff. I did do stuff before I was here. This wasn't the first. <laughs> this this wasn't the first. Uh, <laughs> wasn't the first place. But uh, so anyway, I'll, I can always go look to some of those things up and 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 see about that. But but Melchizedek is uh, is quite the priest, and he was out of Salem, which became Jerusalem, and so that's. Um, God's had his has stamp on it. We've looked at Eden, the land of Eden. We know that Eden comes from that area around where Jerusalem is, where the where Israel was given their 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 plan. God gave them the garden. What was the garden? It's not the garden anymore. But we showed you all the borders and and things like that to uh, show you where that the the Garden of Eden was. Second Samuel chapter seven verse five. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I, for I have not dwelt in a house since the, since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to, to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore... Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfolds, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they will dwell, they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So this is the part where it was uh, promising that Solomon would be the one who would, who would do these things. 
And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever, according to all these words, according to the vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So that's what came from Nathan. So it seems like God is saying, there is a, uh, I'm going to establish myself there forever. And Jerusalem still has the, uh, the place of God. It still is a place where God puts his name. God brought his people back to that place two different times. The last time was in our, our lifetime. And Israel still continually is under pressure to separate the land and to eat, once they retook Jerusalem, to, to split it up or to give it back. It is wrong. God does not want that to be given back. That is a place that God has said, I will put my name on it forever. And Jerusalem stands with the name of God. This is why our country needs to be real careful. When uh, uh, I know uh, President uh, Obama wants to, uh, wants is, was, is putting pressure on Israel to give back land, to give back the city, to give back parts and the two-state solution and all these different things that, are, that they're pressuring to, to go on. It's wrong. And we should not be in it. This city has the name of God on it. And he says it's going to have it forever. And it needs to stay that way. And we need to be careful as a nation that we don't, uh, don't overstep that and, and go in that direction. And there are people, not just the president, there are many other people who want to um, renege our alliance with Israel and side up with other folks and uh, other folks in the region. That's just not a good thing to do. Don't know which way our country is going to go on it down the road, uh, as far as prophecy and scripture and stuff like that. You can, you know, for for a time, people would have thought you were crazy if you ever thought the United States would have abandoned Israel. Now it doesn't look like it's quite so crazy. First uh, Kings eight fourteen. Let's go back there. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing, and he said, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David." And we just read that. And with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come up from your body, he shall build the temple in my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And therefore I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made for our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now when the children of Israel came out of Egypt... And they took over the, the area. There were still a lot of areas that were held by the enemy. When Saul took the throne, he conquered more of that area. When David took the throne, he conquered more of that area and then eventually expanded it to beyond just the borders of Israel to the place that God had actually said, I'm going to give you from this river to this river. But one of the places that David expanded it to was an area they did not control, which was the city of Jerusalem. David took the city of Jerusalem. It was in the hands of the enemy. So David took that as city and then moved his capital to Jerusalem and set this up as the place of which uh, uh, God's house will be built in. 
And so Jerusalem has a lot of significance in all this. Eh, where do we leave off at? Turn. Now we see that um, in uh, verse 17 that it was in David's heart to build God a house. And God says, no, you're not going to do it. Now I put this in your outline for you. Just because it's in your heart and just because it's a good thing to do does not mean it's in God's plan that you should do it. There are some Christians who think whatever comes in on their heart, whatever they feel convicted about, whatever they feel passionate about, God must be in it. And that's not the case. You can still have to listen to the things of God. Paul had places in his heart he wanted to go. And God said, no. David wanted to build this. And God said, no. And you're going to find other, place, other places in the Word of God where people had something in their heart to do and God said, no. Just because it's in our heart does not mean it's perfect. This is where a lot of people have veered off, especially people who feel that they are either prophetically motivated or call themselves a prophet. These are the ones more so than any other group that I have seen have a problem with this. Because whatever they feel in their heart, they say with their mouth. But they don't just say it with their mouth. They say it, thus says the Lord. Always, thus says the Lord. And they put these things out. And you need to be real, real careful with some of these things that, that go on. If you are, if you, and you, you need to be able to pick up on some of this, this stuff. I tell you, it's, it's important. Because there are some folks that are going around anymore and just passing some things off about the name of the Lord and, and putting his name on it. I wish people would understand how severe that was. Don't put God's name on something that you don't know his name belongs with. If you say, thus says the Lord, oh, I'll tell you what. I don't know if all you all picked up on this, but you know when, when Margie was here and uh, the one person got up and had that word for her, right? some of you were here, some of you were not. i tell you, it was everything in me. Because it was not my meeting. It was not my meeting. But it's everything in me to, that's, that's, that should not go on. And I don't know if you noticed it or not, but this, the person who got up went from conversation mode to thus say in the Lord mode, and then back to conversation mode, and then thus saith the Lord mode, and then quickly caught herself, and then back to thus says Lord, or oh my daughter, and stuff. That's wrong, folks. Don't be, that, that's, a, that's the first thing. Another thing you would have noticed in it is that most of the stuff that she prophesied came from the words that Margie said. I don't know if you heard Margie say all those things, but most of them came from, from those. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's just, I, could, I could keep going on about the stuff like that. And I, th- I, I thought back to the days when I had to deal with that person and some other ones that were just like that. I said, thank God. <laughs> thank you, Lord. And it's not that, you know, I don't, I don't mind people being prophetic at all. I love people to be prophetic. But the folks that we have in the church here now, they accept the word of God. They receive the word of God. And when you receive the word of God and you, you stand up and you proclaim, thus saith the Lord, it's balanced by the word of God. Just a, a short conversation with this person, you'll find out they aren't balanced by the word of God. They don't receive the word of God from anyone. And they feel like everyone is, and I have other things that, that I could pass on for you for, for that as well, but that's, that's wrong. A prophet needs to be balanced by the word of God more so than anyone else. You've got to be balanced by that word. 
You've got to be submitted to someone. Most of these folks that go off in the area of prophecy are not submitted to anyone. And you, you'll pick that up, and the first thing's out of the person's mouth. If you, how many were here on that, that Saturday? How many were not here? Missed that. First thing's out of their mouth was, I'm not sure how I should do this, but I'm, basically, I'm going to do it my way anyway. Now, that isn't true, because when that person was here, we haven't changed a thing. And they knew what to do then, and they didn't like it then. And they know what to do now. That's just a, a way to make an excuse. And people who say, if, if I were to walk into a church and I didn't know what the procedure was, I'd keep my mouth shut or I'd go in the back and I'd find an usher and I'd say, if I, ha- if I feel like I was getting something from God, what would I do? And if they say, well, uh, you're being here the first time, we probably wouldn't have you, you say that. Uh, uh, that's fine. That's fine. You see, because God knows how they, they would work things there, how the authority was set up, and God wouldn't give me something that would bypass the authority of the church. That would tell me right there, okay, that I could just go sit down, and I would know. I'm not supposed to say anything. That would be fine. I'd be all right. But you see, the people, well, I just can't, because I just feel that God, no. No, God does not go against authority like that. That's why you've got to be real careful what you set up. Make sure it's the way that God wants it to, to be done. But anyway, that's um, just because it's in your heart. David had it in his heart to do this thing. But he had the wherewithal to listen to God. And God says, David, it's not for you. To, it's, it's, it's great that you want to do this. It's not for you to do. And if he would have gone ahead and done it, he would have gone against the will of God. Even though it was strong in his heart to do it. So what he did was, all right, I'll get everything ready then. <laughs> I'll get it all ready. I'll get all the money. I'll get all the stuff. We'll we'll lay the, the, the we'll, we'll pick out the place. We'll have everything ready so that when I go and they come in, they they can just hit the ground running. And so he did that. Good for him. Good. More prophets need to have that attitude that David has. That uh, all right, it's in my heart to do this, but now God says, no, nah, don't do it this way. Samuel had in his heart. For Saul. And God said, what to him? Get up. What was in his heart? Samuel, a man of God like no one had been in that day. And God said, get up. What's in your heart is not of me. It's not, wasn't it? I mean, God, I've rejected Saul. If I've rejected him, why are you still hanging on to him? See, folks, sometimes... Even though we're God-fearing, seek after God, we can still have some things in our heart that are wrong and feel like it's a good thing. God, you just got to be careful of it. Listen to him. All right, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who kept keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way and they walk before me as you have walked before me. 
Is that how you would phrase this if you were praying? Are you telling God, no, God, you need to keep this. Is that what you would do? <laughs> That's not what I would do. That's not how I would word it. This is a very long prayer. Remember one of the principles we taught you a long time ago? Someone taught it to me, I'm sure. I didn't just come up with it on my own. The longer the prayer, the more opportunity for unbelief. Just, uh, you don't necessarily... He, he prays a long prayer here. And some of it is kind of questionable. Just because it's in the Bible, just because Solomon prayed it, just because God showed up does not mean this prayer is all completely right. You've got to judge it from the, the Word of God like you do anything else. Where do we leave off at? 25? Um, you shall not fail to have a man sit on, before me on your throne of Israel only if your sons take heed to their way and they walk before me as you have walked before me. Well, he knows that part. Right? So all that has to happen for God to keep his way is for you to do your part. Keep your, keep your way in order. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Let your word come true? Is that what you pray to God? Father, I pray that your word would come true. <laughs> would you pray that? <laughs> I, I wouldn't pray it that way. I would say, thank you, Father, that your word is true. I, I could pray that. Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens, heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Well, that sure is true. <laughs> Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. Now, just because you ask God to listen doesn't mean that he will. You got on. <laughs> How many times have we said that? Oh, Father God, hear my prayer. How will God hear your prayer? Because you asked him or because it's in faith? You, you make a prayer in faith. You don't have to ask God to hear it. He hears it. He loves faith. But there's a whole lot of messed up theology in, in this prayer. You'll see it as we get through. You all know enough of the word to, to pick this stuff out. Verse 29. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, and you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. One verse, three times what is mentioned. The temple, the place. You're going to see throughout this entire prayer that Solomon has one thing that he is emphasizing the place that he built. I think this is a problem for him. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. What would cause God to hear? Faith. A heart of repentance. Now, God does talk about this place and does, and does make mention of it, not nearly as often as Solomon. <laughs> Solomon's almost every verse. We're on 30. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people. Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before you, before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous 
by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name. Now that's good. That's one of the better things he has in there. That he first emphasized when they turn, they've sinned and when they turn back from it. That's the first part. And he does get that in there. When they turn back from it. When they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to your fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. That's one of the causes of not having any rain is they sinned against God. When they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflicted them. Now there he had the order a little uh, backwards, but that's where we get the idea. Then hear in, in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land and their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple. Again, we're in the temple thing, but at least he understands the plague of their own heart. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land, which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning the foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake. For they hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, here in your heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, and all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Now that last one he said totally is unfounded. Someone comes from another land because they hear how great God is and they come and they come to this place. He's basically saying, whatever they ask for, give it to them. Mm-hmm. Well, God can't do that because his word restricts what's, what he can do. And you have to have faith in, in what it is that you're, you're going to do. But anyway, he said it. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Well, I'm not quite sure. You know, just because they go out to battle, did God send them? Is it a good battle? Is it a good thing? When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to their enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in a land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them 
For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to their supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separate them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Now, that's not just prophetic what he says here when they're carried away to another land. That's what God said he would do if you don't repent. Someone's going to come in and pull you out and take you to another land. That's, it's already been written in the Word of God, so he's just going after that. But he's basically covering every situation he can think of. And he puts it on in there. And at the end, of course, it's always when they pray to this place, when they pray to this city, that you put your name on, when they pray to this temple that I built, <laughs> and so forth. So there's a lot of emphasis on the, on the temple. Now, the one thing that you will take note of is the presence of God is in the temple. It's in the Ark of the Covenant. It's not in them. In our day and age, the, the veil was rent. The presence of God came out from the Holy of Holies and inhabits each one of us. So that's a little difference that, uh, that Solomon didn't have. So maybe he's looking that the, the presence of God is here. You need to be looking to this place. And that's certainly there. Uh, it, it can be there. But the constant emphasis on the temple that I built, it's a wrong thing. It's, it's not a right thing. It's a very wordy prayer. He surely could have shortened this up a whole lot. He could have just summarized a few, uh, few situations. Hey, if they miss it and they repent and turn back to you, come to this place and make sacrifice, <clears throat> I know that you're healed because you said you would in the word. If they have to go out to battle, if they have a problem in the land, could have certainly just said those, those uh, couple of things, but he didn't. So I put this in your outline for you. Solomon's prayer is focused first on the place and second on the heart. The heart is there. It's not absent. But the emphasis seems to be first on the place and second on the heart. Whereas God is different. God's focus is first on the heart and after that, the place. And you will see that God talks about the place, but his emphasis is always the heart first. He doesn't care if you come to this place. If your heart has not been made right, this place will not help you. God has made that very, very clear. They were coming to this place in the days of Jesus. He wasn't impressed with their prayers in this place. <laughs> he didn't care about their prayer. Their prayers were wrong. They weren't faith-filled. They were religious. They were self-righteous. He didn't care about that. Their prayers didn't go anywhere. Even though they were in the place, not necessarily the same temple, but they were in the place, they were in the city, and Jesus said it was, it was basically worthless because their hearts weren't right. We've got to make sure that the hearts get right. That's the, the place we need to have the focus on. Verse 54, And so it was, when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread out to heaven, that he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised to his servant Moses. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. God carried out all the promises that God said through, through Moses. Now, God, now, Solomon has also mentioned some promises that were made to David about him. We are about 13, 14 years into his reign. 
He reigned around 40 years, I think it was. How many wives does he have now? When exactly did his wives start to turn his heart from the Lord? Could it have been starting to turn during this period of time? I don't know. I don't know exactly when it was. It's after this that it talks about it. But again, that could be going back to... And we already know he's got, um, he's got Pharaoh's daughter. She's an idolater. But she's already a, one of his wives. When did the many wives, when did they start turning his heart away from God? Has his heart already been turned away from God some when he's making this prayer? I don't know. I just know that he does. May have already started to turn a little bit. People want to quote the promises of God. God, you said you would do this, this, and this. Yeah, but God says, yeah, but you're supposed to do this. <laughs> and he's not doing all those things. At least eventually he's going to get to that spot where he's not. Verse 57, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. Why would you pray that? Lord, I pray that you don't leave us or forsake us. Is that a prayer of faith? That's a prayer of doubting what God said in his word. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes, <clears throat> that he may incline our hearts to himself. Is that God's job? Is it God's job to get your heart to be inclined to him? That's ours. To walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes. Anywhere from the promises that come from God to men. Does God ever say, I will help you keep my commandments? No, he says, if you keep my commandments, I will do this. But look at his prayer. That he may incline our hearts, or his blessing actually, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. Folks, it's your decision. It's the thing you've got to do. Verse 57, or 50, 59. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servants and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require. Do you think God is writing these, these words of this prayer down and keeping it next to him? I'm sure Solomon wants to think so. But this, this, this uh, prayer that he's uh, prayed, it's got some holes in it. Then all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God. Now, there you go. That's what you ought to be saying. That's what you ought to be declaring to them. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. I guess there hadn't been enough sacrifices that day. We needed a few more, right? Huh. But he says here that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord is God and there is no other. That's the heart of God. God wants to bless us and keep us in such a way that's a testimony to all the world. And that part he got right. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. God wants to show himself strong on your behalf so that the rest of the world takes notice. Wow, what is it about you? I put here in the, your end of this. It's not the place... The sacrifices, the splendor, or whatever else we do for him. It's the heart. It sure is a whole lot easier to get caught up on the place, the sacrifices, and the splendor 
And certainly the enemy would like to get our focus on the place, the sacrifices, and the splendor. Because if he can just get our emphasis off of the heart, he knows he's got us. He doesn't care what he gets it on. He doesn't care that what you get it on is good and has some value. He's got to get your emphasis off the heart first and foremost. You've got to get to a place where you don't care about your heart. This is how Christians fall into the area of pride, thinking themselves to be better than anyone else and can't receive instruction, can't be submitted to anything. This is, this is what he gets them into. He's got their heart messed up. Wasn't too long ago we spent uh, all those uh, months looking at the, the attitude of our heart because that's the thing that can get us messed up. We stop receiving from other people. We stop helping other people. We stop doing the things we're supposed to do. We stop having the heart of God on some of these things. We'll get focused on other stuff. Places, sacrifices, splendor. But it's the heart. Now I put this in here. Validation does not come from without, but from within. What that means is this. The Spirit of God on the inside of you, folks. That's where the validation comes. Keep your heart right. Receive that validation. Receive that correction. Not just correction, but validation. And God will confirm that what you're doing is good or what you're doing is not. Don't always look for the external. Solomon's prayer involves more external than it does internal. has some, but it involves more external than it does internal. Don't just look around. Well, if God shows up, we must have, must have hit something. Must have been all right. If the circumstances I have in life are going good, then I must be doing okay, right? Don't look for external verification. Look for internal. You've got to get to that spot where your spirit telling you you are on the right path means more than your job telling you that, your bank account telling you that, your health telling you that, all the other things that are going on. Those things doesn't make any difference. On the inside of you, you know. Paul and all his things that he was facing, when he lists all the stuff that was going wrong, and he says, yet through all them the Lord delivers me, that's a man who got hold of inward verification that he could tell, God told me I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Look at Jesus. Look at how much came against him. But down on the inside, he had that, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that voice kept coming on telling him, you're doing good. You're doing exactly what we need to do. And he knew people were going to reject him because of the word, because of his father that was in him. And people are going to reject us as well. But don't, uh, don't be concerned. Look for the inward validation. Look for that Spirit of God to come up on the inside. And, and look for that validation to come. Just because it's on the inside of you, just because you had something on your heart, doesn't mean you should do it. It might be a good idea, but it doesn't mean that you're the one who's supposed to do it. It might be someone else. And maybe you just help pave the way to get it there. Amen. And that's just, just as good. David paved the way. He stood out, outside. I, I, I tell you what, to have it on your heart so much to do what David did and to be able to stand on the sidelines just shows you how much he was submitted to his God and why God says, David, you are not going to lack for a man to be on the throne. David was that special. That's the one we ought to, ought to, to mimic. Solomon has an interesting prayer. <laughs> it's not one that you ought to model and put up on your wall and say, let's pray have prayers like this or... Uh, be real careful what you what you learn from some people's prayers in the Old Testament because not all of them are good. They may have been in the Word, but it doesn't mean that you're supposed to follow it. 
Father, we thank you for the help that you give us. So down on the inside of us, our spirit confirms the things that we should receive, the things that we should not. Our spirit confirms the things that we should do and the things that we should not. Father, we want to have that inward validation that tells us, go on, keep doing the thing you're doing, go in this direction, do this. And I thank you, Father, for the help that you give us in that. We need to make sure that our prayers are in line with your word and not just that they sound good. Not just to pray things that, oh God, you can go out there and do this. But Father, know from your word what you said you would do, what you said you have done, and to pray with the knowledge of those things. We thank you that we can do that. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.